0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again this evening in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Although questions and answers may take us elsewhere, I'm excited to get into Ephesians chapter 2 and to show you my new display, because what I talked about doing the other day, I did it. I went ahead and put little gaps within uh, within verse 12. So remember at that time you were separate from Christ. And I made that word bold. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. So tell me, not right now, but after class, before you leave, uh, tell me how cool that looks. right? Because it's all spread out line by line with each of those items in bold. And... Uh, really is going to help us, I think, keep those things in mind. So separate, excluded, strangers, hopeless, and godless, and uh, the, the estate of Gentile humanity during the dispensation of Israel, uh, it is what it is. But that's not what it is any longer because now we have a new estate that has come to be created, and that's called in Christ, and that is our position now in, uh, in the church. So we can be very, very thankful for that. All right. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study of the Word of God. Let's go to Him in prayer. Humble our hearts. Confess any sin that needs to be dealt with. And otherwise, prepare for truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before You tonight thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing that by Your grace we can learn the truth. And we thank You for... Uh, the living and abiding Word of God. We thank you for the church age in which we uh, were born and saved. And, and Father, this is uh, such an amazing thing to study. And and every time we we peel back another layer, it just gets more and more beautiful every time we look at it. So thank you for the dispensation of the church. Thank you for the dispensations that you you have provided and for the blessed studies that uh, we're undertaking even now. So, Father, all of this is in your hands. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, I tell you, I am excited. Not only for Ephesians, because obviously we have the church age material, the fullness of time material, all of the dispensational studies here. But then clearly in Genesis, where we're dealing with the Abrahamic covenant and all of the dispensational ramifications there. And even in Proverbs this morning, we had a whole section related to the Davidic covenant when we were looking at principles of faithfulness in Psalm 89. And so I expect, at least for the next 15 weeks or so, while uh, our seminary students are going through their dispensational class, that uh, many of these other Bible studies that we're a part of are going to be blessed and enriched to be able to explore Uh, these dispensational principles here as well. All right, it is Wednesday night. We want to start with a few questions and answers. If we have a microphone ready to go and a microphone runner ready to go, we can appreciate that. We did have a question uh, that was pending from like two weeks ago that um, Josiah had asked about, and and really had a question in Exodus related to Moses and the uh, questions that he was um, asking of Pharaoh He says, Moses' original request was to go out and worship God with the people and return to Egypt. When did that change? And and so he's talking about uh, Exodus chapter 5. And and really, it's a stretch of eight chapters from chapter 5 to chapter 12. So uh, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And uh, this is the initial request. And the next statement in verse 3 says, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And so this seems to be the opening request of what's made. And it's not a request for complete freedom and permanent departure, even though it does have the language of let my people go. But the stated purpose is, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. It's not the stated purpose of so that they can move to the land of Canaan and and set up a new nation, right? And never return as your slaves. It's not phrased that way in the initial request. And so that's a good observation. and It's a great question. So uh, when Pharaoh drove them out, was he simply granting Moses' original request and they were expected to return? No, that's not the case. Things changed in between chapter 5 and chapter 12. Did the change in plans happen when Pharaoh chased them after and ended up killing his entire army? No, the the plan changed before that. It changed before, uh, as the ten plagues were being administered, before Passover, certainly. Um, And it was always the plan, all along. Sometimes God will say things when he has uh, intentions for something uh, beyond that. And clearly that's that's the case here. Obviously God's plan was to get Israel into the land of Canaan by hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, but then, uh, for Moses and Israel, when, for Moses and Israel, did it become the plan to go live in Canaan? Or was Moses all along asking for the freedom of Israel? Because it doesn't seem to read that way. And then he goes on to say, from Pharaoh's perspective, if you're asking to pack up all your belongings and go into the wilderness, it certainly seems like you're trying to escape. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're going to take our wives and our children with us. Oh, and by the way, we're packing up everything else. You know, We're also going to plunder you while we're at it. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear we're not coming back uh, on, on that kind of a basis. It's also funny to see the pessimism of Jacob on the people of Israel since the entire reason they were enslaved was because Pharaoh knew he could not win a war against Israel and they still whine as if they're somehow powerless against Pharaoh. So there, there's really a lot in that question and, and it does span multiple generations You know, because the, the Jacob question is one thing when they first went down there and then the Moses question is something else 400 years later when they're coming out and uh, and there's a whole lot there as well. He had another question too kind of related to this is if if Abraham and 318 men could just go and defeat five kings then how in the world did did the Egyptians enslave uh Israel in the first place? It seems like that wouldn't even be possible if uh, if Abraham and 318 were so so, so mighty warriors and things like that. That also spans generations from Abraham to uh, Jacob. And obviously, Jacob didn't have the, uh, the servants and the faith that Abraham had, or uh, they would not have been taken slaves the way that they were. So anyway, um, other things you can do, by the way, and I find it very useful uh, for things like this. I did something similar with the Abraham and the Lord conversations back and forth. I went ahead and color-coded all the words between Pharaoh and Moses. And and it's useful. You can do searches for uh, spoken addresses within Logos. Anytime a word is being spoken, that word is tagged with who's the speaker and who's the addressee. And so then you can do uh, searches for that. You can color code them. You can create visual filters and all the rest. And so uh, that's why you have the the coloration that you have there with the yellows and the oranges. So anyway, if that's something that interests you and you want to learn how to do that, um, just ask me and I'll be glad to sit down with you and, and show you how to do those uh, those context searches. All right, so that's our old business. We're ready for some new business tonight. If We have some fresh questions and we got uh, the microphone over here and uh, we'll start there. I'm going to go ahead and change this to purple and mark it as answered.
1: Okay, so this is kind of a dispensationalism question. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, you know, always uh, acknowledging uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh-huh. You were you just, You've described recently in a couple Sundays, like, it might have even been last Sunday in the Ephesians class, where you were describing that there were Old Testament believers that never believed in Jesus, but they were gathered to Abraham's bosom. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. They, they were not part of the church because they didn't change their thinking, right? They didn't accept the Christ.
0: So Old Testament believers that were saved prior to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, so like when Daniel got saved or when Moses right. got saved or any Old Testament saint got saved, they were saved looking forward to the coming Messiah. Messiah is coming. I love that phrase. The woman of the well said that. Messiah is coming. And, and that's uh, it's much better than winter is coming. I mean, come on, Messiah is coming. And for an Old Testament profession of faith, that's uh, that's, that's a great testimony there. And so they didn't know the name Jesus. They were expecting the name Emmanuel, actually. Uh, anybody that was familiar with Isaiah would be expecting the name Emmanuel. Uh, but they were expecting seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, seed of David. They were expecting um, a virgin in Bethlehem, I mean it got very specific by the time the the final revelation of the coming Messiah was given uh, but even the Gentiles had an expectation that, that a Savior was on the way that there was a seed of the woman that was promised to crush the serpent's head and so essentially that's Old Testament gospel information that's Old Testament salvation so it still is true John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life has always been the case but they didn't have the specific name or the other information that we have now with our hindsight looking back. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, so my question is, is that weird in-between time, uh-huh.
0: right? So, like,
1: uh, let's just say it's first century church, that, that weird time where there were still Old Testament believers running around, uh-huh. right? So, when if they never got a chance to meet a Christian, or they rejected the gospel message of the early Christians, but they accepted the gospel information of the Old Testament, they were saved. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah, they were saved. There's no question they were saved. And and I would dispute that they never met a Christian or never had a chance to be exposed to the gospel because that's entirely what the the early chapters of the book of Acts were all about. Yeah. And God the Holy Spirit was very capable of sending people where they needed to go so that Peter could go to uh, meet Cornelius, so that uh, other folks could go to Ephesus and meet uh, uh, Apollos. And, and And they were constantly meeting people throughout the book of Acts. They were meeting Old Testament believers that had not yet heard about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so um yeah, I don't I don't think that the Holy Spirit missed anybody that oh darn, I forgot to get them the gospel. So um no for those who who heard it and rejected it that's that's the better question is related to yeah. old Testament believers that like Paul or like any and, and they got saved very, very young. And so they have eternal life, they have eternal security. They are old testament believers, but then they, um, they got saturated with Phariseeism. They got saturated. They got ruined at graduate school. They went to seminary and lost their faith. You know, they became massive legalists. And, and so now they come face-to-face with Jesus Christ, and they reject him. They come face-to-face with Jesus Christ, and they absolutely, which, which Saul of Tarsus was on the verge of doing, if it wasn't for that Damascus Road episode, right? So you could have Old Testament believers who don't cross into the church. Yeah, yeah, that's my question. Now, they don't lose their salvation because they're, they're eternal and secure. They're still saved. The issue is they never did cross into the church. They never matriculated. I, I like to use the word matriculated. They never matriculated into the church age. So they stay Old Testament believers, which means they died eventually, whenever they physically died, and they, uh, they have an eternal estate as Old Testament believers, not church age. So that means they're to they're not in Christ. They're not going to be raised at the rapture. They're not going to be with us at the judgment seat of Christ. They will have to wait for the second advent. They're going to have to wait for the beginning of the millennium for their resurrection. And they will rise with all the other Old Testament believers with Noah and Daniel and Job and everybody from the Old Testament. And when they could have, been. Uh, part of the royal family of God, part of the uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so that crossover generation is it's, it's the only time in human history such a thing is possible that you could have uh, a believer, because they're an Old Testament believer, who then rejects Jesus as the Christ and fails to cross into the church age.
1: Right. So a Jew now who practices Judaism and believes in a theistic God, but they don't believe in Jesus... When they die, they are going to hell
0: now. A Jewish person today cannot be saved in the same way that an Old Testament believer got saved. That's right. Because an Old Testament believer got saved believing in the coming Christ. But we're past that now. We're now in the church where there's salvation in no other name. A Jewish person today cannot receive eternal life by believing in the coming Christ. They have to believe in the Christ who came.
1: Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that's where I was getting the I'm mm-hmm. the way, the truth and the life verse from. That's what yep. I was thinking. Okay.
0: Oh, that's okay. a good verse. In fact two of my daughters came from that verse. With uh <laughs> Alethea and Zoe. Okay? Just never God never gave me a HADOS, so we don't have a that's a horrible name for a girl anyway. Who wants to be a girl named HADOS? So anyway.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: Oh, thank you for those. Okay. Across the aisle over here, we've got Thad and then we got Ed. Um, how were um, Gentile proselytes uh, to Judaism um, viewed, you know... Um it's a marvelous question. Um, most of the religious leaders viewed viewed them as second-class Jews. I mean, so as long as they submitted, as long as they went through the proselyte process, uh, which did change over the years too, by the way, um, if they were circumcised, if they... Uh, They were welcome to take part in Passover and Pentecost and feasts and so forth, uh, but they weren't given a tribal status, and and they were just really kind of considered uh, second-class quasi-Jews, as far as I understand it. Now, that's from their perspective. I also must urge everyone to consider that the Jewish uh, religious leaders were very frequently wrong on a lot of things, and Jesus had to absolutely rebuke them. Um, Based on what we're studying tonight in Ephesians chapter 2, I don't think it's correct to view a Gentile proselyte as having any of the advantages and blessings of Israel. And, and we'll be back in that text again tonight. So I believe that, yes, they were born again, Uriah the Hittite, um, or any other Gentile believer that you could point to. There's even reason to believe that Caleb was was uh, a Gentile, adopted into uh, the, the tribe of Judah with uh, certain reasons why. He's got two different lines of parentage that's mentioned there. Um, so that's a long answer to a short question, but I, I, we may find out, not only when we finish with Ephesians chapter 2, but also when we get to Ephesians chapter 3, that, that Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And we're going to see that the houses, the various Gentile houses, do have paterological significance. And so uh, my suspicion is those Gentile proselytes actually belong with their Gentile people groups. So, for all eternity when they are resurrected on that basis. Okay, and then Ed. Ed, you're our clean-up hitter tonight, so this this needs to be a good one. You mentioned the other day the lineage of the Jewish race during the Old Testament, during the Bible, came through the father, but now it's traced through the mother. That's a change they made in the Middle Ages. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was wondering when did they, when did they do it and why? Yeah, um, honestly, uh, with the global dispersion and the aftermath of the the Roman destruction of of their nation, uh, there was a lot of and and really with the arrival of Islam and a lot of the, uh, the the warfare that happened there, some of the the most horrible things that the Jewish families ever went through was defeat in war. The, the rape of the women, uh, the questionable paternity of some of the offspring. And um, it, it just became, and this is before paternity tests or DNA or any modern science, right? So uh, if, if a Jewish woman birthed that child, then they credited that woman as, I mean, that baby as being Jewish. And then they would assume that her Jewish husband was the father, even if they had reason to believe that there was, other things happening. So anyway, that's a switch that happened in the, in the Middle Ages. And so it is curious to me if we might be in a situation today where there are people who consider themselves Jewish and God does not consider them Jewish because he tracks the patrilineal line all the way back and they don't have the father to son descent from any of the 12 tribes. Would God, would God consider them Jewish or not? And thankfully, it won't matter until Jesus returns And then uh, he'll have the omniscience to sort it all out. And and, and I I do suspect there could be a lot of folks. Maybe Bolanders are Jewish. We we don't know. Um, I did get an email from a Bolander in France one time, and he was asking me because the Bolanders in France are all Jewish. And so he was asking if the Bolanders in America are all Jewish. And I said, no, I don't think so. But my family came from, it wasn't Germany back then, but it's called Germany today. It was the Holy Roman Empire on the German side of things. And uh, and we weren't on the French side of things. So anyway, um, it would serve me right with all the French jokes I've made over the years if I was to find out that my family was actually French and Jewish and whatever else. But, anyway, the Lord will sort that out too. Thankfully, in the Church Age, it doesn't matter. We don't give two hoots. We don't give one hoot. Okay, it's uh, that uh, neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, male or female. So, so one no, no, okay. no, nothing like that. So. Okay, well, I do appreciate all the questions, and if I did not get to yours, then let me know. I'll, I'll let you go first next week. If uh, if you're heartbroken tonight, I will mend that broken heart next week and allow you to go first. Was there anything on YouTube? No, okay, good deal. Well, then, let's uh, close this out and go to Ephesians 2.11. And we've already covered the um, therefore remember imperative. It's interesting. Verses 1 through 10 did not have a remember imperative. There's a lot of similarities. And uh, we think about the similarities like having a a then and now contrast. Because uh, verses 1 through 10 did talk about then a lot of times. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. um, But the now was only implicit, not explicit in verses 1 through 10. it's not until we get to uh, verse 13 that we finally have a now. This now is a very emphatic now, okay? There's different kinds of nows, and this one is an emphatic now. It's not just a noon, it's a noonie, And it's an emphatic now that is contrasted with the, um, at that opportune time, the, the, uh, the former kairos that used to be, now we have a new kairos. And the new kairos is called the church age. And the dispensation of the church is what we have celebrated here in this, uh, in this paragraph. So we have covered main point one, therefore remember, and we've covered subpoints A, B, C, D, E, and F. Even F had some subpoints. points. And we realize what we're looking at in verses 11 through 22 is a dispensational contrast. It is a dispensational um, excursus, if you will. It is a discourse on how God functioned, how humanity functioned before the church and how the church now functions since Pentecost since the church has now come to exist and so we have what was formerly formerly there used to be distinctions between Jew and Gentile formerly there used to be a barrier a dividing wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles so much so that there was actually enmity between Jews and Gentiles, and that was never designed to be there. That should not have been there. But it came about, and and we'll discuss how such enmity can arise in uh, human uh, interactions. But that was then. That was before the day of Pentecost of 33 AD. That was before the church was birthed, before the church was created in this world. Now that the church has been created, then there's the... uh, the provision that's made to escape from this Gentile estate and to have the much better estate of the church, the royal family of God, the heavenly citizenship that we have to be members of God's household. So uh, just remember, in verses 1 through 10, the contrast was unbelievers getting saved. You were spiritually dead. He made you alive. In those first 10 verses, it was a description of what you used to be as unbelievers, what you are now that you're saved. That's not what we're dealing with in 11 through 22. In 11 through 22, we're talking corporately. We're talking collectively. We're talking about people groups that identify as such. You, the Gentiles in the flesh. We're talking about the estate of Gentileness. Okay? The estate of what it means to be not a chosen people when the chosen people were the stewards on this earth. So... Prior to the creation of the church, Gentiles and Jews functioned in widely different realms. Widely different realms. Okay? It had nothing to do with whether they were saved or not. It just has to do with the fact that the Jews were the chosen people. And they had the stewardship duties. Starting with being entrusted with the oracles of God. That they, they were the ones that had the prophets selected to write the, the Hebrew canon of scripture. Gentiles and Jews functioned in widely different realms identified by physical birth and entirely unrelated to any born-again salvation experience. So a Hittite could still get saved, like Uriah. Okay? An Ammonite could still get saved. An Edomite could still get saved. You could have individuals. A, a Moabite could get saved. Ruth was a Moabitess, but she got saved. Okay? But all of those individual Gentiles getting saved did not change anything with respect to the Hittite people group. The Hittite people group were still separated, excluded, strangers, hopeless, and godless. They did not have a Christ. They did not have a Messiah. There was no Hittite Messiah. There was no Egyptian Messiah. There was no Greek Messiah. There was no... The only Messiah was the Jewish Messiah. And the only people group that had a God was Israel. Because the creator God of the universe is the Lord God of Israel. And so the Hittites didn't have... Well, the only gods the Hittites had were false gods. The only gods the Greek had, Greeks had were false gods. In Ephesus, they had Artemis, who wasn't real. okay, Just a fallen angel posing as, as, a, as a goddess. And so the, the Gentile estate was what it was. And honestly, it still is that way today for those that aren't yet saved. okay. But when you get saved, when a Jew gets saved, they're not a Jew anymore... When a Gentile gets saved, they're not a Gentile anymore. They are actually baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ, and they have a new positional estate. They, they they leave behind the Gentile estate they were born into. They leave behind the the Jewish estate they were born into, and they enter into the church by virtue of the second birth, being born again. And so praise God, we are born again, and praise God, we are uh, uh, believers in the church age. So, entirely different realms unrelated to any born-again salvation experience. The Jews were the chosen people and they had every Jewish advantage regardless of whether they were even saved. Gentile nations had every disadvantage even when individuals among them happened to get saved. So, just individual Gentiles getting saved did not change the Gentile estate that they were physically born into. Now, at that kairos opportune time, at that kairos opportune time, I think that's a curious phrase. At that kairos. At that then. Okay? Again, here we have it in verse 12. And the imperative to remember that you were at that to kairos ekeno. Not just any kairos, that ekenos. That that. That exact opportune time, different from the present opportune time. It's a dispensational contrast. At that time, you were, and this is what you were, and this is true for all the uncircumcised. It didn't matter. Roman, Greek, Egyptian, uh, whatever. Strangely enough, the Egyptians had a form of circumcision, but they're still considered uncircumcised as far as the covenant relationship with Yahweh is concerned. They're not under the Abrahamic covenant. And so all the uncircumcised were separate, excluded, strangers, hopeless, and godless. All of which gets summarized in verse 13 as far off. In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have now been brought near. So this is what we're dealing with. Separate from Christ. Christless. Messiahless. Messiahless. Okay? And this... I mean, we can still relate to this today as far as people groups are concerned. If, uh, you know, whatever you identify with, whatever you were born into... Uh, I was born an American and and so you have... You know, a lot of patriotism and a lot of uh, appreciation for the blessings of your, of your uh, birth country. And, and clearly, America has been very blessed for a long, long time. And I'm thankful to, be, uh, to have the, the uh, privileges and blessings of, of American citizenship. Um, but at the same time, I realize, you know what? Uh, the American people group is, has no Christ. There's no promised American Messiah. The only Messiah is the Hebrew Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah who came 2,000 years ago. America is Christless, Messiahless. There is no American Messiah, not even folks that make the news frequently. (laughs) Okay? There's no American Messiah. There's no, uh, and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That's right. I'm not an Israeli citizen. I'm an American citizen. The Gentile estate is excluded. The nation of Israel is a Jewish state. That's how they were founded. That's how God founded them. That goes way back prior to 1948. They are a Jewish nation. And so Gentiles are excluded. Strangers to the covenants of promise. We are estranged because what, uh, what eternal covenants, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New Covenant... What uh, and you can, we can maybe include the Mosaic covenant here. I think there's reasons to separate the Mosaic covenant out, but either way, Gentiles weren't under the Mosaic covenant either. So go ahead and include it. Strangers to the covenants of promise. I just tend to not include Mosaic as a covenant of promise. It was a covenant of, of it was a conditional covenant. It was a covenant of wrath. It was a covenant of condemnation. No one could keep, and it was not eternal. It was designed to be temporary. But Americans are strangers to the covenants of promise. God didn't make the Abrahamic covenant with America. Didn't make the Davidic covenant with America. Didn't make the new covenant with America. And so, as Americans, we are Christless. We are excluded from Israeli citizenship. And we are covenantless. Strangers to the Jewish covenants. I mean, all of this is saying we're not Jews. (laughs) Gentile nations don't have the Jewish Christ, we don't have the Jewish citizenship, we don't have the Jewish covenants of promise. Likewise, we don't have a hope. We don't have a hope. Or whatever hope we think we have is artificial, it's human, it's temporary. We don't have a divine hope. We don't have a prophetic anticipation that America will be uh, will be uh, existent in the uh, the millennial kingdom. There's no promise. And I know we, we think there is. We, uh, we sing it. God bless America. God shed his grace on thee. Wishful thinking. And there's nothing wrong with asking for it. And there's nothing wrong with wanting that to be the case. But it is uh, kind of a sad thing to me be- because before we get to the millennium, we've got a tribulation on the way. And in the coming tribulation, guess what? Every nation on this planet will be hostile to Israel. And so if America does still exist it's going to be a different America than we know now. And it's going to be an America that's hostile to Israel because every Gentile nation will be hostile to Israel in the the coming tribulation. They will have no remaining allies. Strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and godless without God in this world. And it's really pathetic to me that we now have uh, athletes and musicians and, you know, we've got... The American pantheon is so pathetic... That uh, you know, compared you know, any pantheon is pathetic compared to the one true God. Am I I right? So you know, Zeus and Hercules and Thor and Odin and whatever. I mean, you got these pantheons. You have the Egyptians with Ra and whoever. Compared to the Lord God, but then it gets even a further step into pathetic uh, territory when you understand the American pantheon is uh, Taylor Swift and and LeBron James, and and I mean, just think about all the the pantheon of American idols that we have. Even we call it entertainment, and it's American Idol. Seriously? Idolatry is now entertainment? When did that happen? So we are indeed godless. We are without God in this world as a Gentile people group. So this is what we're working through. And to get the details on this, again, I'm just dazzled by Learning how to do that. If you want to learn how to do that, let me know. I'll show you how to put the little uh, emphasis things in there. Um, separate from Christ, as it says in the Greek, "Koris Christu, No Gentile ethnos had a Messiah. The only Messiah is the Hebrew Messiah, and He came two thousand years ago, born of a virgin, and uh, and we understand that story very well. No Gentile ethnos had had, ever had, or to this day still does not have, or ever will have, a Messiah. Because there's only one, and he's a Jew. And uh, this is what not only Ephesians 2.12 is talking about, but we have the correlating passage in Romans 9.5. The advantages of the Jewish people. Whose are the fathers? And this is worth reading, too, because this brings up several of them. Paul said, I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Even though he was a church-age believer and he was a part of the royal family of God, he had the whole portfolio of assets that we're studying right now, he would be willing to throw all of that away if he could save the Jewish people. And his patriotism, his love for the, the Jewish people, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, there it is again, As the citizenship in the politeia of Israel. To whom belongs the adoption as sons. Now Ephesians doesn't go into that, but um, that is a feature for Israel. It's a different adoption than our adoption in Christ. And the glory. That's not mentioned in Ephesians either, but we understand the Shekinah glory for what it is, what it was. No Gentile nation ever had the glory of God dwelling in its capital city. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was pretty dazzled with what he built. He walked around thinking Babylon was great, with a huge palace and big gates and a, and a hanging garden. And he just thought, wow, I I've, I've built this marvelous capital city here. And as great as Babylon was, it didn't have a Shekinah glory. Okay? Only Jerusalem, only the Jewish people had the Shekinah glory dwelling in their midst. And so the glory is another feature that is exclusive to the Jews. The covenants. Again, the covenants. I hit this so often because, uh, especially when people try to put the church under the new covenant, I say, stop, wait a minute. Don't confuse Jews, Gentiles, and church. Those are divisions of humanity. And the covenants, they don't belong to the Gentiles. They belong to the Jews. They don't belong to the church because we're neither Jew nor Gentile. The covenants belong to the Jews. And the giving of the law. That's why, again, I think it's worth separating out Mosaic law from... The covenants, the giving of the law, and the temple service. What temple service does America have? What temple service do the, you know, the the um, the Corinthians had a temple service, and it was called a thousand priestesses to the to the goddess, the sex goddess of Aphrodite, okay. And the Ephesians had a temple service with with uh, uh, Artemis, and, and and there were different temples all over the place. But the Jewish temple was the real temple, again, where you could approach the holiness of God. One day a year, one high priest could, uh, could represent his people. And the promises. Every promise. Essentially, eschatology is the doctrine of the Jewish promises for the future. <laughs> All right? And that's, that's really what it comes down to. I think uh, we'll do better if we separate out. Just don't even put the rapture into, into an eschatological division. Leave the rapture as ecclesiology. And, and just limit your eschatology to the real eschatology, the Jewish eschatology of the uh, day of the Lord, the, 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 the kingdom of God, and the, uh, the new heavens and new earth. Those are the promises. That's where eschatology should be centered, in the Jewish promises. Whose are the fathers? We're talking Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes. Those are the fathers. We don't have those. No Gentile nation has those. You know, the Romans could claim uh, Romulus and Remus, and they could have different legends on their founding, and the Greeks could claim whatever, and, and different people groups like to have legends of how they started. No, the fathers were the Jews. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From whom is the Christ? According to the flesh. There it is. That's why we are Christless as the Gentile people groups. We have no Messiah, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So, several of these items here in Romans 9, verses 3, 4, and 5 are immediately parallel to our passage tonight in Ephesians 2 and verse, uh, verse 12. So, remember, you were separate from Christ. Coris Christi. Without Christ. Every Gentile people group is without Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Alienated from the polity of Israel. Alienated from the politeia. If you don't like the word polity, use political body. Okay, The political body of... I mean, every people group has a body politic. Okay, A public group. The, the idea of the... Even the word republic speaks to that. The, the rule of the people. A body politic. And if you're not Jewish, this is not your body politic. You've got a different body politic, according to Genesis 10. And this is what we're going to pick up. So, um, every Gentile ethnos, I thought I fixed that. It should be ethnos with an N, not ethos, that's a different word. Every Gentile ethnos had their own God-given politeia. Their own God-given Politeia. And we're going to prove that here tonight. Okay? And so being excluded from the uh, Commonwealth of Israel, of course, because they were under different Politeia than Israel. Genesis 10:32. Uh, after the flood, the families of the sons of Noah were separated. And God separated them. It happened during the days of Peleg. That's why he got his name Peleg. When Heber named his son Peleg, it was because of this division. The Tower of Babel division and dispersion that you read about in Genesis 11. But these are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies. That is their Toledoth. Everybody has a Toledoth. Okay, Adam had a Toledoth. Noah had a Toledoth. Abraham had a Toledoth. And every Gentile people group has a Toledoth. And God knows them all. Every family in heaven and earth derives its name from God the Father. We'll get to that in Ephesians 3.14. So, the families of the sons of Noah, according to their Toledoth, by their nations. And this is the fourth of the laws of divine establishment. That you have personal volition. Every human being in the image of God is sovereign in your own uh, conscience, sovereign in your own thinking, sovereign in your own viewpoints and opinions. Then you have marriage. We have two sovereign opinions somehow trying to work that out. (laughs) Okay? With a prefer and defer of two sovereign opinions in one flesh. And then you have family. And then you have Nations. Once you get to the point of family and the extended families that are known as clans and tribes, the, the largest division of, of family clan tribe is nation. When you reach that top level, when you reach that top level, that's what keeps you from going global. You reach that top level and your ethnos is identified by land and language. And we see it here. By their nations according to their genealogies. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. You'll notice, these are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages. God invented 70 languages when he separated them there at Babel. By their lands, according to their nations. And in some ways, you know, you can can keep things very, very simple. You can realize that, okay, there's, there's, um, there's Russians, Russian people, living in a land called Russia, speaking a language called Russian. You notice something in common there? And then there's Ukrainians, Ukrainian people, living in a land called Ukraine, speaking a language called Ukrainian. Okay? You noticing a trend with that? Okay? French, living in a place called France. Speaking a language called French. And we have kind of messed that up a bit and, and part of the legacy of the of what happens. And any time you have colonies and you plant daughter colonies and whatnot, I mean the Phoenicians were the first, they scattered Phoenician colonies all over the place. But then here so we don't we do have a place called England, where English people do speak English, but now we have a whole lot of English places okay and uh, are they are they English anymore? In fact, I start to think that American is a whole separate language anyway, right? When does a dialect get its own language status okay there's There's actually wars over this that happen okay that they insist that the Moldovans insist that Moldovian is not Romanian okay all right, and Serbian is not bosnian and and you have so many languages that are just dialects of, of their neighbors. Anyway. was it that said a, a language is a dialect with an army? Okay? Not that I'm quoting for, for spiritual purposes, but I'm just saying there's something to that when it comes to this. So, this is the pattern, okay? And this is just going all the way back to Genesis 10. Okay? But it's not just by itself. Deuteronomy 32.8 says that the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. So besides land and boundaries and all these other earthly things, there is a design, a God-given design for the nations. Israel is not the only nation with an inheritance. I believe they have the greatest inheritance. They are the chosen people after all. But they're not the only people group with an inheritance. Every people group has an inheritance. When he separated the sons of man and he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, I believe that should be sons of God, rather than sons of Israel in Deuteronomy two eight, And that's a text criticism issue with a manuscript puzzle that, that you've got to work out in different ways. But I believe the original reading was the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, that then later got changed to the B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel. In any event, however you take that variant, it's still God that is giving inheritances to the nations. How about Job 12, verses 23 through 25? And remember, Job is two generations pre-Abraham. I just estimate that based upon his lifespan and the lifespan of Abraham's grandfather. Okay, That's the closest match I can find. He's, he's going to outlive Abraham. He's going to outlive Terah. And if he is, in fact, the Jobob of, uh, of Genesis uh, uh, chapter uh, 11, or chapter... 11, yes, then, uh, then that would also help to peg him as a grandson of Eber. And uh, not through Peleg, but through Joktan in, uh, in that generation. Anyway, it's an early date. And look at the nations. It's an early date. It's after the flood. And clearly it's also after Babel. Because they've already been placed in their nations, right? Where was, where was Job from? The land of Ur. Where was Bildad from? And Zophar and Eliphaz. They were all from different places. Kind of makes you wonder what languages they were speaking when they got together to accuse Job of all that stuff. Anyway, here's the testimony. Talking about God now. God makes the nations great and then destroys them. So, uh, is America great? Do we have the greatness we used to have? When we did have it, Who made it that way? God did, not us. And if we're no longer great, who made it that way? God did. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. So some nations, He will increase their capacity, He'll increase their boundaries, He'll enlarge them, give them greater capacity, and then, when they get too big for their britches, what happens? Leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of Earth's people. I actually made that a Facebook meme the other day, and uh, which was very popular. Got a lot of ha 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 laughs on on Facebook because I quoted that verse: "He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of Earth's people," and I put that phrase overlaid on the top of a picture of Joe, Joe Biden looking looking clueless. Okay, and and it it got a lot of laughs. But who does this? God does this. And makes them wander in a pathless waste. There's a lot there that we can deal with, not only in geopolitics, but also in angelic conflict terminology. Makes them wander in a pathless waste. What happens when you are a people group and you don't have a nation anymore? Okay, And you don't have sovereignty anymore. Or you, you think you do, but it's only because uh, the group that conquered you is allowing you to, to pretend or act like you still do. But you only have it at the sufferance of the one that conquered you. There are still Assyrians on earth today. You realize that? But the Assyrian Empire fell thousands of years ago. But you can find people that identify as ethnic Assyrians. Many of them are actually Christians of a sort. Believe it, believe it or not. But you know we've got we got nations here the Cherokee Nation the Navajo Nation the you know uh, you have they don't have sovereign boundaries anymore but they still identify in their ethnos their their ethnicities wandering in a pathless waste they up in darkness with no light he makes them stagger like a drunken man and part of the reason is the darkness of those dispossessed uh, or disinherited disinherited, uh, when a people group loses its land, it's because they're no longer a place for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll show you that as well. Because God has sovereignty over all of this. We say Jesus Christ controls history because the Father has now delegated these things to the Son. But this is how it works. All right. And so I think these principles are important. Genesis ten thirty two, Deuteronomy thirty two eight, Job twelve verses twenty three and twenty five you say, okay, well, that was centuries ago. That was millennia ago. That was way back in the day. You know, give me a passage that wasn't written in the Bronze Age. <laughs> give me a passage that was written. Okay, how about a church age text of Acts 17:26? Acts 17. And this is Paul in Athens, preaching a sermon on, on Mars Hill. This is in the church age. This is after Pentecost. Paul stood in the midst of the Europagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. Not that that counts for anything, but it was at least something to start with. And while passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. And it's always good to cover your bases if you you think you might have missed one. Because you have altars to all these other gods everywhere. And uh, just in case you might have missed one, let's go ahead and get this extra one out here. And Paul says, how about that? An unknown God. You want to know about the real God? What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. What you worship in ignorance. I love that. What you worship in ignorance. Agnoeo. noeo. Anytime somebody tells you they're an agnostic, just let them know. Okay, it's a great word. It means ignorance, and I can fix ignorance. Okay, if you're agnostic, you're ignorant, we have the information to remedy that. We'll tell you about the uh, the one true God, creator of heaven and earth. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not need temples not to dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He's the source of everything. These, these unbelievers, these atheists, these God-hating atheists, they're still breathing God's good air, are they, are they not? But by His grace? Now the key verse here in verse twenty six. He made from one man. Think of the King James said he made from one blood, but he made from one, okay, Adam, one man. Everybody came out of Adam, even Eve. I mean, starting with Eve, right? Eve came out of that, and then Adam and Eve started having babies, and 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 it just started from there. Okay, we are all Adamic. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So every nation that's out there, that ever has been out there, that ever will be out there, right? What's what's the newest nation in the world today? There was uh, just um, South Sudan, I think, is the newest one. It just became a separate, separate country. No longer part of Sudan. It's now South Sudan. It's now its own sovereign nation. I don't know. If there's one newer than that, I'm, I'm I might be out of date. I try to stick current. But every nation on this earth, the human beings that live in that nation, whether they're they're French or Ukrainians or Russians or Americans or whatever they are, South Sudanians, every nation descends from Adam. They're all Adamic nations, which is kind of fun too. Even you know you start to consider the variety of skin colors that that are represented by these. Nations. They all come from Adam. Now notice. I mean, that's, that's mind-boggling enough. We're all from Adam, but he designed the nations as he designed them. And notice, having determined here's sovereignty at work, here's God shepherding these people groups, determined their appointed times. What do you think those are? Multiple times. Plural. The time that the nation is born. And the time that nation ends. okay, And maybe a few other times in between. But at the very least, every nation has a birth date and an expiration date. Israel is the only nation without an expiration date. Because they have an eternal hope. They have a future promise for all eternity. Determining their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So, appointed times, also boundaries. God's in charge of the boundaries. And he puts them in place, he moves them, he makes them larger, he makes them smaller. We saw that in Job. He will enlarge, and then he will sweep away. And, and this is nothing new. This is nothing. This wasn't invented by Europeans in, in their colonialism. This has been going on since time. It has been going on since Nimrod. Nimrod went forth to conquer and to move boundaries. God let it happen. Because God's sovereign over the appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Notice, purpose clause. That they would seek God. Ah. Here is one of the criteria God uses. Criterion? Criteria. One of the criteria God uses when he enlarges borders, when he shrinks borders, when he magnifies a nation, when he removes a nation. Purpose clause, seeking God. Is, is this a land where there is freedom to preach the gospel? Is this a land where people seeking God can find him? If perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Because remember, most of these nations don't have the light that the Jews had. They're groping in the dark, but God's nearby and God is knowable. Yet perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That's a marvelous promise. He's not far. Now keep that in mind, because one of the descriptions we've got to deal with coming up is the fact that the Gentiles were far off. But they aren't that far. Okay, You can be far, but not that far. There's a there's a, a question to ask. You can also be near, but not near enough. Israel was near, but not near enough. Not like us. They were near, but they weren't in Christ. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna discuss what does it mean to be near? One of the gospel promises it's near you. You don't have to ascend to heaven, you don't have to descend to Sheol. The gospel is near. It's even in your mouth. That's pretty near. What's nearer than in your mouth? In your heart. Ooh, that's pretty near. What's nearer than in your mouth and in your heart? Okay? This is, a, this is a reference of nearness in Deuteronomy that applies to Israel. It actually gets adapted by Paul in Romans chapter 10 about being near you. But there's a nearness that we have in Christ that's even nearer than that because it is one. It is a oneness. We identify with the person of Jesus Christ. We are one with Him. Understand that one with Him. He prayed to the Father that they may be one even as we are one. I in you and you in me and we in them. We have a oneness in Christ. It's like in marriage. The two shall become one. Well, we are the bride of Christ. We are one. So we have a nearness. I hope we get excited over this stuff. So here's God and his sovereignty over the Gentile people groups made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times. This is why race is so stupid. There's one race, it's the human race. There are multiple nations and those ethnicities of nations are what they are with lands and languages but they're still human beings as far as the Adamic race is concerned. Determining their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You understand why all of this is under attack? You understand why Satan is attacking nations and tearing up boundaries and moving people groups all over the place with mass migration uncontrolled. It's an attack on this. It's an attack on nationalism. Same thing as he attacks family, the same thing as he attacks marriage, same thing that he attacks volition. And we've got such rampant fornication going on, you've got to wonder, does marriage even matter anymore? And then we've got so much drug abuse and alcoholism everywhere that you wonder, is, is volition even a thing anymore? Is anybody in their right mind? I mean, present company excluded. I'm not talking to you guys. But I'm starting to wonder, except for Austin Bible Church, are there any sane people left on this planet? Because... Satan's fallen cosmos has gone, has progressed so well, so far down the path of destroying volition, destroying marriage, destroying family, destroying nations. So, be comforted. God's in charge. None of this happens without his sovereignty allowing it, designing it, shaping it. So, uh, separate, alienated, strangers, to the covenants of promise Abrahamic Mosaic Davidic New I'm going to go ahead right now and cross this off and say alright take that out <coughs> They were strangers to the law also but the covenants of promise were the Abrahamic Davidic and New Covenants and strangers Zenoe Zenoe you ever get called xenophobic by uh, a lot of the the, uh, the woke people that like to call people uh, every kind of phobic they can invent Right? There's about a billion phobics out there, and, uh, and, and you and I are all of them. Okay? Uh, but the xenophobic that they like to talk about comes from this word, uh, the idea of strangers, the idea of foreigners, the idea of aliens. And um, the Gentiles are aliens, strangers from the covenants of promise. No Gentile nation had a birthing and an adoption event like the nation of Israel. No, uh, no Gentile nation had the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenants that the nation of Israel was given. Likewise, hopeless and godless. Alright, hopeless and godless. We'll wrap those up on Sunday and then we'll move on to the but now. The very emphatic but now. And the but now is there's now a new creature, there's now a new creation in this cosmos and it's called the church. But now, you who are far off are now nearer than any of the near Israelites, the Jews, ever were. There is a new creation and a new nearness. And it's called the royal family of God, members of God's household. It's a much better polity than the polity of Israel. Okay? And so we'll look at that as well. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace. Father, thank you for this hour. This hour just flew by. I thank you for the teaching that you are blessing us with and the appreciation for the dispensations. And I thank you, Father, that we have this uh this glorious church age text here in Ephesians and it's going so well, Father, with um the, the seminary and the just the, the material that we're looking at in the dispensational study there. So continue to uh to bless these studies, continue to open our eyes, help us to appreciate and to communicate this uh this glorious truth. We live in a culture where a lot of this is lost, even among evangelical churches, more and more are are Departing from dispensational truth, and they're going, they're going reformed, or they're going uh, all millennial, or they're going, they're going lordship, or they're going replacement. And they're going all kinds of places, Father. So I pray that uh, we can stand fast and and speak the truth. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, folks, keep your armor on.